0: I'm Scott Cuthbert, CEO and co-founder
1: of Safepedia, and I'm Gabe Carnishon, Vice President of BBL Safety,
0: and we're here uh, with Cam Stevens for another episode of uh, Safonomics. <clears throat> and so, Cam, if you if you're not on LinkedIn, maybe you you don't know Cam, but if you are, you've probably seen uh, his travels as of as of the last uh, few years. So we just thought we'd <clears throat> kick it over to Cam to kind of give us an introduction and a little background of his journey over the last few years. So yeah.
2: Thanks want to... lads. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm Cam Stevens based in Perth, Western Australia. Uh, I call myself the trusted voice of safety tech and digital safety transformation. Uh, that came about by, you know, starting my career was well, first started as a chef, but that didn't last too long. I, I moved to become a physical therapist early in my career. And then uh, transitioned my way through health and safety professional roles, uh, traveling all over the world, working in places as remote as the jungles of Papua New Guinea and up in the north slope of Alaska. And um, in the last five to six years or so, I've been working predominantly exploring emerging technologies and how they impact and can improve the design of work and therefore the safety of work and as of may this year i've uh, moved full time into building my own consultancy practice that supports organisations to explore that world that intersection of safety and technology to try and improve the way that they they work and improve health and safety outcomes along the way
0: yeah it's an exciting <clears throat> exciting journey and uh, obviously from you know the uh, different professions into into safety but how did you how did you kind of latch on to the technology side of of safety what was the catalyst for that
2: the the first catalyst was a um was a major f-up uh in a um (laughs) in in a technology deployment i uh i was asked to support a tech deployment uh it was a, a global enterprise software deployment which we were trying to put onto the blackberry device uh so we were trying to have a mobile a mobility forward strategy to help frontline workers to access work order information on the BlackBerry interface, and it was just a complete disaster. So I was, it all made a lot of sense uh, on paper, but the execution and the user interface and the 50 clicks that it took to actually get the result that we were hoping for was super frustrating, very, very time consuming, cost a lot of money uh, for the business, and I naively was part of that and, uh, kind of said to myself, I would, I wouldn't do that again. Um, part of the reason why I was culpable was i didn't really understand the, the basics of the, the fundamental basics of what was needed to be successful from a technology perspective. Mm. And I also didn't understand just how much of a magnitude of a, of human centered change was, was part of technology, uh, deployment. So. Very early in my career, uh, I identified that health and safety professionals, practitioners have a significant role to play when it comes to tech solutions. And you can't decouple technology from the way that we design work. Technology is embedded and kind of deeply embedded into everything that we do. So to me, it felt natural that I needed to explore that world more to determine what role I could play to shape better outcomes.
1: I think that's so important, too, that you you realized that there was that big gap between how it looks on paper um, to maybe the people that are developing the tech itself and then the actual end users. And I feel like there's so much of that that's, that's missing. I feel like I fall into this sometimes where I can I can design a spreadsheet or some sort of a program that would look phenomenal and it works great in my head. And then I realize, wait a second, OK, I, let's think about the the people that are actually using this, Um the moment I I pull a spreadsheet up and someone says, "Oh, you know, what are what do all the little boxes mean?" I'm like, "Okay, we have <laughs> I have to recenter the the expectations here as to what I'm working with." And I feel like that's that's where a lot of tech companies will miss that mark uh, when they don't understand how the work is actually being done, or there's they they misunderstand it, and so then you're right. Then it becomes this this nasty cycle of putting all of this effort and this time and money into developing some piece of technology and then it never gets implemented because people that were working on it don't understand how to use it and then it turns and then what could have been a good idea is really just canned after that point because people weren't using it when really it's it's the matter of translating the tech to the work and vice versa that is the issue
2: yeah and Worse than it not being used is it being used and it causing psychological harm. So yes, (laughs) psych health and safety risk is inherent in technology solution design. Hmm. Again, another reason why it's critically important for health and safety practitioners, professionals to be involved, because we can look at the way that the design of that solution could potentially impact cognitive load, increase stress, poor user experience, therefore frustration. It could change the communication dynamics. Like we have a role to play and I don't think we realize as much of the role that we can play and that understanding work and that difference between work as imagined and work as done. A mm. lot of people uh, really getting engaged with hot principles. That's all very much part of this. So this is more about human than it is about tech. And I I find that's the hardest part for me to translate to my audiences is, I'm not a tech guy from a background, but I understand the role that technology plays, but I understand the role that it plays to elevate uh, humans in the workplace. So I think there's a real miscommunication or a, a knowledge lens that people have that they think that just because I work predominantly with technology solutions that I don't have a focus on human and it's the complete opposite. <laughs> right. So you
1: start yeah. human first and then you you use the tech to... Uh augment that absolutely awesome
0: yeah that's a great great point and great great perspective um we we just zoom out for for a minute because i mean you you're you're traveling and uh you know you're uh, part of a lot of projects and research you know what are what are the what are some of the big tech trends that you see coming down the pipe in 2024 2025 that will uh, impact or enhance uh, health and safety within within organizations.
2: Yeah, great question and I'm glad you framed it in the terms of what are the trends because that's that's an important differentiator between what are the technologies. Hmm. So the individual technologies that are enabling better work in the next you know 36 months or so you tell me like <laughs> uh, the it's the it's the trend that that were that's driving the change. so without being overly prepared for this chat, what I'm seeing um is a shift to a real hyper personalization of experience particularly as it relates to health and safety. So we do a lot of generic information and knowledge transfer about how we want to you know train or or support workplaces or workers or teams to understand risk and how to work within the risk frameworks of our business. But it's very generic. Um, Mm. The trends that we're seeing in technology, which leverage some of the systems like artificial intelligence technologies, uh, mobility devices, so hyper-personalizing those experiences. So, if I like Google Pixel, I'll use Google Pixel. If you like iPhone? iPhone is your solution of choice. If you like Microsoft Surface, then we need to support you with that. So being really hyper-personalized about the hardware that you, that you use and the content that we serve you up needs to be hyper-personalized as well. So I'm currently working with solutions that can support uh, real-time transition to give you information if you're dyslexic mm. or if you have ADHD and you need a specific way that that information is provided to you, I can personalize that in a really hyper-personalized way in really? preferences that you need. So this hyper-personalization of, of health and safety-related content uh, is 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 happening. The 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 mega-trend that we're seeing as well is humans plus machines are better together, and that trend um, does talk to that hyper-personalization. It also talks to the fact that, we're trying to decouple or, or take away too much uh, work for humans to do uh, to generate data for the business to make decisions. So we're seeing data generation. So the way that we extract information from work being more automated by sensors, by, mm. by cameras so that workers don't have to be the person entering all of the information. The last part is we're seeing a, a more human interaction with technology. So talking to the devices, this is not a natural way to interact with a device, we should be walking, like looking around and we might be touching information in 3D space with our hands, but talking, interacting more naturally, that's the, the types of trends we're seeing. So hyper-personalization, humans plus machines better together and a far more human interaction with technology, they're the the big trends that we're seeing and there's enabling technologies that support that network connectivity we see a lot more low orbit satellite communication happening so connectivity everywhere we'll start to see the transition from 5g um still over the next 36 months we'll be you know still not even anywhere near rolling out 5g globally but we'll start to see the um the wi-fi protocol start to change but connectivity will be better Mobile devices will be more personalized, mm-hmm. and we'll start to see a significant shift in the way that we interact with those systems.
1: Right. So I want to touch. I want to touch on that that personalization a little bit because I I feel like, um, and I don't know what the solution is to this. It just kind of came to mind. Where if you're if you're hyper personalizing how people interact with, let's say, some form of technology or how they're gathering data, how do you keep? Is data quality going to become an issue? and how do you keep that from being being an issue if the, if it's so personalized to to so many different you know it, it the three of us or 300 of us could all have different ways that we want to interact with the information if it's personalized 300 different ways could you have
2: issues with data quality so data quality is different to governance so governance the governance framework is critically important okay. um so one of the great international standards frameworks that's good to wrap your head around for this is the ISO 26,000 social responsibility standard. Okay. Um, and then the cybersecurity standards, which will, um, sort of wrap around that. So, um, that includes data quality. So you can't trust, you can't trust, uh, personalized, recommendations if you don't understand the source material and the source material isn't robust. Um, so personalization only happens once you have robust foundations. So, um, in terms of where do you start to even be able to extract hyper-personalized or be able to even move down that pathway, there's, there's some pretty clear steps of where to start and certainly understanding the life cycle of data. So from how it's generated. How it's collected, how it's pre-processed, processed, stored, visualized, you know, integrated—all of those. So that whole life cycle of data, that's um, foundational. Um, and then from there, we can start determining how we personalize, how we contextualize, and serve up that information. So, absolutely. But the governance structure that sits around that, which includes privacy, ethics. And the strategic view of how we're going to use this stuff, that's- um, it's the way that we have governance frameworks around critical risk controls, mm. this is just another, another way to do that. But we just have to be more um, collaborative because as health and safety practitioners and professionals, we're not meant to know the answers. But when we do know governance, and mm. we should know governance. So, <laughs> we can apply those principles to this um, kind of more data-driven future of health and safety hmm that's pretty cool
0: yeah so i i think that um my my experience that i was going to say the hyper personalization i remember um working with a company and they were rolling out just uh like uh time time clock type devices to job sites and they were all impressed because if you were left-handed and you swiped in it knew you were left-handed and it would reorient the screen and that was the that was kind of the level of of personalization uh you know, 20 plus years ago when, when uh, I was working out in the field, but um, is the, are you seeing the, like you talked about a more natural way to interact with technology. <clears throat> um, and I know one of the challenges always been, you know, safety professionals spending so much time collecting the data that they don't necessarily get to sit back, analyze and understand the data and and look, uh, look at oh, predictive trends, so do you do you see technology enabling uh, safety professionals more time to analyze the data or are we not quite there yet?
2: Well, we're not at prediction, but we are at humans plus machines better together. So human in the loop, humans being served up information that they might not have been able to do or they certainly wouldn't have been able to do on their own. I think the big key here is disparate data sets that we wouldn't normally consider looking together. So, you might be working in a civil construction company, and there might be a basketball game that's happening, uh, you know, towards the end, the whole city is converging on the stadium, which is changing the route of how concrete gets delivered. Mm. Those types of things, those disparate, these things you never think of, you can get traffic data uh, you can even get the forecast of when the basketball games are playing. So, you could say that on this Friday in June, I know I'm going to have issues with concrete delivery, which could mean that the setting time changes, which means that I'm going to hmm. have pressure put on the workforce, which means I'm going like, to... It's this kind of stuff that um, means we're able to better understand these you know, unknown, unknown unknowns, or they'll actually become known uh, factors. Um, right. So, <laughs> machines are supporting us to have to to make sense of data that we wouldn't have normally been able to do just because we as humans, we don't have the capacity to do that. But at the moment, we're the architects of whether we, you know, we have to think curiously and creatively about which data we need to start pulling together because the machines will be able to do that in the future for us. But now we're the, you know, we're the masters of, their, of the domain. We're the ones that get to choose. We're also therefore the ones that put significant bias in the system. So right now, to think that we're able to be really predictive means we're just we're just we're putting a lot of our own bias in the system. So we're we're being as predictive as we would do manually, mm, um, just faster.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. So <laughs> yeah, which which can you know, as you've just described them, um, might be a bit of a problem. The other thing is is um, as you alluded to before, Gabe, the data quality isn't good. Historically, health and safety data is rubbish. Mm. Like we collect a lot of rubbish. <laughs> so um, I was listening to a, an interesting insurance-related podcast about data analytics recently where they were saying that you can predict, you can heat map a very kind of surface-level understanding of roughly if I have you know more hours doing this type of manual job, I'm going to get more likely to have a back incident. Uh, a back and musculoskeletal issue. Yeah, <laughs> no, of course you are, <laughs> um, but we're not, we're not at you know, really nuanced and antecedent factors. Uh, we're not able to really understand all of those dynamic um, challenges, and we're also unable to do anything in real time because we're just not set up to do real-time data mm. management. So we're doing everything from <laughs> latent data, so you know, we're expecting that we know what happened in a confined space entry from a historical permit audit. We look at a permit audit and go, wow, all of those controls are in place and effective from a piece of paper that or or an electronic permit that happened six months ago. It's like right. f- what was actually happening at the time. So we're not used to dealing with real-time data. Hmm. Maintenance uh, programs are so predictive maintenance, you know, they get a lot of real-time sensor-based information off off equipment, and we've been able to do predictive maintenance for a long time. We're not able to do that with safety. Is it going to free up safety professionals' time? Not in the short term. It actually should be invested. We should be be a lot more Mm -hmm. engaged with the data, and it probably is going to take a lot more time for us to crunch through. But the longer-term prize, yes, safety professionals will be able to have far more nuance about being able to deal with the human side of people in the business and how they interact with each other and let the disparate data sources and the machines to kind of figure out ways to give us contextual insight so we can hone our focus on what's important.
0: Right. Do do you think, um, and it may be an obvious sort of question, but... um, You know, safety professional skill sets having to uh, evolve maybe more rapidly than than uh, our 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 schools and education systems and organizations are able to support.
2: Only in the specialist domain. Only if you need to be a real specialist resource. the The main skill or attribute that is needed is curiosity. You know, I spoke at the NSC Congress uh, at the end of last month, and the the call to action was be curious, <laughs> be curious, and build relationships. in in our our mindset and the the thinking around being open to innovation and open to change is is the biggest roadblock right now for health and safety practitioners and professionals. We don't. We don't celebrate curiosity as much as we should, and we don't foster that curiosity as much as we should. Curiosity is what's going to unlock the innovation, and curiosity is going to mean that we are quite clear about our knowledge gaps. At the moment, it's sort of a bit of a mess because everyone says it's, it's too hard, basket, or I don't feel competent or confident as an individual. And certainly, the um, the universities are trying to work off a very robust evidence base, and there isn't really a really robust evidence base in this domain. So, the universities will always lag because they're not prepared to to do something that doesn't isn't founded on really sound research, which is probably fair enough. But what we don't have is um, really an alternative, uh, and without um, with Without plugging too much, it's the reason why I started the company. Right, the the whole point of building the Safety Innovation Academy was because that there is a gap between formal education and practical ability to actually get started doing this stuff. So th- there is a there is a gap at the moment. Um, but if you're curious, that's the starting point.
0: Today, we're proud to announce that this podcast is brought to you by Isometrics Lumina, the most modern ESG platform from the most trusted name in EHS. Isometrics ESG software automates your greenhouse gas calculations across scopes one, two, and three, and maintains content from multiple ESG standards and frameworks, enabling you to easily meet your and disclose your requirements. From there, set your ESG objectives and track your progress with Lumina's intuitive dashboards. Visit isometrics.com to upgrade your ESG management and reporting.
1: Yeah, it feels like there needs to be that kind of safe space for people to be curious and test some of the the long-founded data and practices and policies and procedures without being concerned, am I going to break something? Am I going to injure someone? Or could I lose my job or something like that? So if you have a place where you can be curious and well, almost like a sandbox and test yeah. it out there and then see, hey, this kind of works. Let me see if I can deploy this maybe in pieces in real time or in the real world and then see how it goes from there. Uh, I think that's the best way to to start to foster that innovation. But if people don't have that safe space or that that sandbox, to really be curious, it's going to get squant. It, it, it'll it'll just get squished after a while, and people will not want to. <laughs> if you get slapped every time you try to be curious and test something out, you're probably going to stop doing that going forward.
2: Yeah, you. There's a couple of, you know, there's so many threads to pull there. First of all, is the response to curiosity and creativity, and trying to do something different is foundational. It's critical, and it is. The reason why a lot of this stuff has got nothing to do with technology; it's all to do with our uh, of trust and right. and the human way of what we do. The second is is one of the first things I do with the clients that I work with is we 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 try to to find a, a space that we can allow experimentation and demonstrate value to the business in a safe way. Um, the the you know the, there is danger in having innovation hubs though because innovation never leaves the hub because it's too much of a safe space and the business's posture isn't there to actually take risk. So, we have to uh, only establish those types of um, safe spaces with a really clear strategy of how we get out of there. How do we get it into the business? If we demonstrate value and we demonstrate a risk management strategy, let's get it into the business. Otherwise, why are we doing it? Right. Third one, and the use sandbox is really interesting. There is a thing called the Regulatory Sandbox. A lot of people will say, well, what is a regulator going to say about this? And obviously in the US and um, context will be, what is OSHA going to say? Like, does this Mm -hmm. meet regulatory requirements? Well, um, the Safety Tech Accelerator, which is based out of the UK, um, they have just been working with the UK regulator, the UK HSC, on the Regulatory Sandbox, which is basically a regulatory um, safe space to play to test emerging technologies to determine Uh, How can we, uh, for health and safety specifically, about how these health and safety technologies can be managed and what are all of the challenges and what is the regulator's response in this sandbox environment so that they can then go to scale. So, uh, that philosophy is absolutely a great place to start, Mm. but it has to be done strategically. And there's nothing worse than an organisation that says, we want to be more innovative, and then they innovate in a sandbox which doesn't ever get seen in the light of day. Which is basically like I'm innovating to look cool and to go to the market to say, look how amazing we are. And the workers basically go, it's a load of BS. We don't see any of that innovation, and we never see that. And <clears throat> they win awards, they win safety awards, they're up on stage talking about how amazing they are, but they actually are not able to be. They're actually not able to innovate at all because they're basically just putting innovation over in a in a box and letting yeah. it stay there. Um, yeah. so there's a significant danger if you don't do it in a more strategic manner
0: interesting that's that's actually a flashback to you know before i even had the idea for safeopedia I was on the construction owners association safety committee and they were talking about how they're great at developing best practices but they really suck at actually implementing them <laughs> and <laughs> and and that was the big challenge was everybody could get together and and you know imagine best practices and and write those big long documents describing how they should all work but but actually implementing them was was a big big challenge and kind of you know circling back to something I, th- I think i heard you say earlier is that it, it really needs to be integrated with operations in order to be successful in the long term that it's not this isn't uh safety tech for the sake safety, safety tech and it's not just um, supporting safety as a as a vertical within an organization, but it's how you integrate that with with oper- operations. Did I hear that correctly?
2: Yeah, and I think that for those of you that have heard me speak, I, I always like to re-establish the definition of what is safety tech. Um, most people think of safety tech as the the safety management system software. Um, and they're often the ones that sponsor the talks and are talking about their solutions. So it's often what we see and hear and feel and think about safety tech. My definition in the Safety Innovation Academy is any technology that has the potential to improve the design, the experience, or the safety of work, or and or the safety of work. So the design, the experience, and the safety of work. If we start with any technology that improves the design of work, ultimately safety will be an outcome of that. So if you improve the design of work, both throughout the, the the design, the planning, the execution, the continuous improvement, so the whole design of the way that work is sort of ideated and then executed in a business, um, if you use technology to improve that, then you're more than likely going to improve health and safety outcomes. Hmm. If you use technology to improve the experience of the work, so is the work more delightful, is the work more engaging, is the work more fun, then you're more than likely going to have better health and safety outcomes, particularly psychological health and safety outcomes because you'll feel engaged with work, you'll you want to be at work. And then obviously technology that directly improves health and safety outcomes, so people and machine proximity, that is a, a, a very clear health and safety, or it's a, a a sensor that means that I don't have to put my hand into a uh, you know into a rotating piece of equipment. It's specifically cause and effect, health and safety related. Mm-hmm. So any technology that has the potential to improve the design, experience, and safety of work, where safety is process safety, health, psychological health, safety and well being, a catch all, that definition of technology means the air conditioning unit in my cab of my truck is a safety technology because it's improving my conditions, my experience and my ability to concentrate. Uh, yeah. So if we broaden that definition, then it means that our customer base uh, is far broader. It's the whole business and ops and maintenance are far more engaged because they're like, I want that. I want anything that's going to improve my maintenance strategy. I mean, um, okay. so it's not just seen as you know safety when they're looking to support these technology solutions uh helping improve the way that work is performed full stop um and that might be more efficient it might be more yeah more productive and ultimately better all around safer better so tech right. for better work ultimately
1: yeah there was something with that too that you you mentioned early on even about being curious as uh, as a key part of of innovation and advancement for for safety professionals and then now you're talking about uh, broadening that definition of technology as to anything that's going to improve the quality of work. What I like about that too is that um, it does not—it's not hinging on how big of a of a company you work with or how big of a budget you have. You can find ways, even as a small company or even as an individual safety manager, like just an army of one. That you can you can build these things in yourself of being curious or of looking at at the quote unquote technology that is in your that is currently in your your workplace, not anything new that's being added, but see how do you improve the quality of the work or that work experience. So I mean we talked early on even before we started recording about practical application of technology and. I think one of the barriers that a lot of people will have first is that when they see the price tag on, let's say, a new a new system or some sort of of, of equipment, there there's this immediate feeling of just oh I'll, we don't have the resources to to apply that, or you know it's too expensive for us. But it sounds like a lot of this can really be applied even regardless of the size or the budget of the company. So what are some of the things that you've seen with the application of technology that has applied even to small to mid-sized businesses and, and workplaces that maybe don't have those multi-million dollar budgets for, for safety initiatives?
2: Yeah, I mean, oh, this the answer to that question comes down to what's the problem that we're trying to solve. Hmm. Um, most organizations jump straight to what technologies exist that I can use to try and improve my work? Um, <laughs> well, first of all, just to, to use because, Hey, we need to use AI because everyone's using AI. So, um, so I'll give you an example where you might not think that this is technology at all. Um, but I was working in a library and the, um, the, basically they were getting lots of, um, musculoskeletal issues with, um, you know, reaching and, and bending down low and all this kind of stuff. Um, but they were having a customer issue with, um, where people were unable to read the spines of the labels.
0: Hmm.
2: Um, so it was a and, – and basically these people would come up and they would um, there would be a little bit of bullying kind of going on at the counter. These, most of these people were volunteers as well and would be like, I can't read the spine of the label. And, all this. and that, that was a challenge for the business. But the, the improvement strategy was improved lighting. Hmm. Because by improving the lighting and actually there was, um, uh, uh, what they ended up doing as well was lowering all of the, um, or uh, lowering all of the, they lost a little bit of stock, but they, they lowered all of the, um, the counter so that you could see along. And we did the same thing in a, um, one of the key challenges in a supermarket, exactly the same scenario was theft. Hmm. And the reason why there was theft, because there was floor to ceiling, um, racks and one, it was a musculoskeletal challenge trying to fill those racks. The public couldn't access those shelves either. Um, but because there was no visual line of sight, people felt that they could quite easily just take stuff because no one right. else could see them. So we lowered everything down. They consolidated their stock, which means that they had less manual handling. They had a far more consolidated stock line. There might not have been as many choices, but they were able to 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 provide the choices that were the most... Common, and they could then have a, a an ordering system. That means that they could bring things on pretty quickly on demand. But most importantly, is by lowering the um, the size or the the shelves, they could they reduce theft because they they brought a, a more human connection into what was going on. Oh wow! Now you could argue that that has nothing to do really with technology um, in the lighting sense or making bigger barcodes. It's a participative ergonom- ergonomics approach. But the reason why I'm providing this analogy is. What is the problem that you're trying to solve, and how do you think creatively about solving that problem, and where does technology fit into the mix? And technology is anything that can improve that work that is, you know, not really human. So, right. any like I, I'm advocating for, yeah, if you improve the colour temperature of the lighting to improve the mood, you've now gone and de-escalated the, uh, you know, this, or you improve, you have some tranquil music, or you improve you put some plants in the in the office these types of things are the the types of experimentations and they're the because they then evolve to these more um potentially complex and more digital forward solutions that do you know start to you know might be a sensor to look at air quality so that it turns on the air conditioning so that it's a far more um comfortable environment when I first get into the workforce. So we might, for example, put a sensor into a, a workplace that, um, two hours before regular office opening hours, the air conditioning kicks on so that when you get in, it's at a really balanced temperature, but over the nighttime period, you're saving energy. So, and then I've now got a fiscal return, uh, so a dollar return on investment. I'm meeting my sustainability policy objectives and I'm improving comfort, therefore you know, and I'm meeting all of these things, but I've been really clear on the problem and I've sought out creative ways to solve the problem. So those types of examples are sort of really easy ways to do things. Now, specific gadgets, you know, what could I use? Um, I- I'm very cautious not to say a-, a particular type of solution because it really does depend on the context and the workplace, uh, the posture and their ability to adopt these things. So. You know, it might be uh, a very simple mobile application that does a particular function, or it could be a sensor, or it might be uh, a robotic assistance. And in that library, for example, we had um, a counterbalanced digital scale that basically raised up and down uh, based on a calibration of how many books <clears> were we'll put on. You pop the scan the book into the scanner, and it automatically had RFID capability and ultra wideband Bluetooth, so that I could determine where all the books were in the uh, in in the library. And as a total combination of lighting, sensors, some robotics, all together improved. Now, incrementally, uh, if you looked at the totality of that, it was probably a reasonably expensive exercise mm-hmm. when you looked at it. But the total experience of that library and that library ended up winning awards for better design and all these things there's yeah there's many ways to start and you don't have to have a significant budget and you know I- i'm saying that something as simple as lighting is safety technology
1: I-, I love that too because one of the things that i i remember one of my early experiences in getting into safety and i'm on more on the uh, the ppe side and uh, i remember i had a uh, a manufacturer come to my office and say, "Oh, we have some really neat new technology on this safety vest." I thought, "Okay, this is what is it?" And I thought maybe it was going to be something like RFID or some sort of stuff like that. And they said, "No, we've we've uh, we've added an extra pocket on the vest." And I thought, "Are you kidding me? Like that's that's the tech that you have now?" But then the more they talked about it, I realized, okay, I had it, adding that pocket actually for the worker was a huge level of convenience. It, it was. Um, just the placement of it, the fact that there was more places to store things, was actually that, as you're saying now, that improvement of the work experience, even with something as simple and low-tech as a, uh, as a pocket. Um, and so I, I kind of poo-pooed that for a long time, but now realizing that, wow, that actually is a, a legitimate improvement um, and an application of a technological solution, as something as basic as a pocket, is super helpful. Um, And then later on when they announced that they had a new type of vest that had no pockets, I said, okay, well, I can't keep up with you guys. You're you're just innovating way too fast here. (laughs) It's too much.
2: (laughs) I'm not sure about the pocket, but um, I (laughs) I definitely think, you know, something like a a new, uh, you know, a good innovation from a technology standpoint in the PPE market, for example, was going for the thermoplastic toe uh, on a steel Mm cap boot. Yeah. Which, um, you know, drastically... Changed the comfort, the weight, the frustration of going in and out of airports. All of those right. things. Still in the US, you get to take your shoes off for every, everything. But you know, in the in the real world, you get to go through the scanner and actually wear your shoes. Um, but those kind of things, um, yeah, they are a tech. They are a techno- technological solution, albeit out of nanomaterial. Or um, you know, so, so technology can be thought about in different ways. Right. Um, but certainly, there are um, very you know, maybe people are listening to this going, "You're loopy. Um, this is going a little bit off." And sure, um, if we're looking at uh, the data style of technology, um, then you know any organisation can can start with, "What data do I need to generate to make better decisions?" And how am I going to generate that data? Most organisations will go to mobile first, where they have uh, access to so everybody has a mobile phone smartphone ultimately, and how can we then start having low-cost or free solutions that can help improve that? My Google Pixel, uh, the buds right now can give me a very um, rudimentary Level of hearing wellness. So, whether or not I'm exposed over the duration, even outside of work, of how much I'm exposed. In this case, it's calibrated to 80 dBA time weighted average uh, over the duration of um, uh, an eight hour day. And it will give me insight and it's totally free. It's just well, totally mm. free in terms of like it costs what it costs for me to have my phone. So, there are lightweight solutions that exist on the market that are low cost, no cost, that can get you started. Um, but they all found on this data strategy that you need to look at first.
0: Yeah. Uh, it, uh, it, you know, one of the things that we're always interested in learning about and, and sharing is is uh, opportunities for, for safety professionals to advance their careers or expand, you know, expand their kind of career horizons. <clears throat> the library example that you gave, like you said, was, you know, sounding more or bigger than just safety was sort of operations and efficiency and customer satisfaction and all those different aspects. So just wondering if you could kind of touch on some opportunities maybe that you've seen um, safety professionals, you know, embrace, embrace and excel at because they were curious and open-minded and, and, and exploring, uh, you know, different technology solutions for their organizations.
2: Yeah. So, the human centered design philosophies and customer experience and service design is where health and safety professionals can excel without even realizing they're good at it. Mm. Um, so, this whole concept of workers imagined, workers versus workers done, being operationally curious, understanding work as it's performed, those types of things um, are where health and safety practitioners can unlock significant value for an enterprise. We talked about hyper personalization and particularly when we're coming to uh, hyper-personalization through the use of the artificial intelligence solutions that exist, so leveraging natural language processing for language context or real-time language translation, those types of things, hyper-personalized. What a health and safety practitioner can do is effectively understand the personas of the business, develop a Mm -hmm. service blueprint. How do we interact or how do we... Do activities at work, and what do each of the personas within our business need, or what is their profile? So, for example, a subcontractor that is only on your site for uh, one hour a month, they would have a persona. They would have a uh, basically a a background and a and you could a, a typical kind of example of that type of profile, that user profile. Uh, An employee that works in finance in a business will have a particular type of profile. They might like working with numbers. They might like um, very strong governance. An engineer might like very uh, planned and methodical, or, you know, they might like to work with three-dimensional data. You might then have um, a trainee that works in your business who has a different type of persona, you might have neurotypical or a Spanish-speaking workforce, or you might even employ people with physical or cognitive disability uh, or different types of user profiles that will be in your business. Health and safety practitioners are great at being able to understand those different user profiles and Mm. creating a persona for them for the business to then Uh, feed into their systems in the future to be able to support hyper-personalization and to be able to support a far better experience, Um, those personas can be provided to technology vendors to better create solutions that support the needs of the actual business. So there's a a no technology way to get started to then really help uh, improve the way that technology can be brought into the business and be really sustainable and effective.
1: I think that that goes back to your original point of even understanding the problem that you're trying to solve. If if you understand the people that are working in in your organization and how the organization runs, that is part of of determining the issues that need resolution. So before you, as you said, before you jump into the the newest, shiniest, coolest thing that people are talking about, well, start to see first do you actually need to deploy that, or is it actually going to could it possibly even make the problem worse? Um, if you understand what it is you're trying to solve by understanding the workers that are there and as you said, even like those those personas, those profiles, just having an understanding of the of the business and of the workers, I think that's a great place to start.
2: yeah. I mean the so the with the work that I do in my consulting practice, typically what we start with, is we look at a framework of how we transform from a a digital transformation for safety. So we normally would start with a current state analysis, Mm -hmm. which is exactly that. So what is the state of health and safety management system and leadership and trust? What is the current state of technology in terms of its adoption? Like what do people think about technology? How much do they use it at home? How much do they use it at work? What's their sentiment related to that? What are their preferences? But then the next is, what is a vision? So. You know, it's all well and good saying, well, you know, this is current stock, but like, where are we heading and what is the North Star for the business? And, and then you might have a really visionary organization and a very, uh, you know, old school or um, rigid and, and hierarchical, you know, structure and uh, embedded practices. And there might be quite a disconnect between the vision state and the current state. Therefore, the right. ability to get there is going to be quite significant. Um, so, getting a clear understanding of what it is that you, where you are, and where you want to get to, and we haven't talked technology at all. Like right, right. That's, that's nothing to do with technology. Once you understand that, and then you get really clear on then what are the what are the problems and and what is our vision to solve these types of problems, then you can start exploring the technology solutions, which is why when you say, you know, what are some examples, it's like, it's kind of not relevant if I give you an example, I can give you an example, but it's not necessarily going to be helpful takeaway for people listening to this webinar, because it might not be contextually relevant at all for them, and it might not right. suit their vision, and it might not suit where they're at. Now, some organizations can't they're paralyzed to 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 get into technology enablement because they haven't worked on the foundations, typically with our trust and leadership. So you don't, you know, you may need to spend a lot more time there. And it might take several months, weeks, days, years to get prepared to be able to change. Um, so that change inertia and there might be a bunch of other change going in the business. So that change fatigue or the the mm-hmm. paralysis that people have means that. You know, without that current state analysis, future state vision, and understanding of that linkage between those two. Yeah. But the, the role of the safety professional is to me very clear, but to safety professionals, I don't think it's clear at all. They're like, what am I supposed to do? How do mm. I get started? Um, so that's, you know, there's an element of boosting your digital literacy to feel a little bit confident, um, but I don't think that it's, um. you need a lot to be able to realize that you've got a huge role to play in the preparation and the change management and the understanding of how to determine whether these things will be successful or not. Because the technology teams aren't doing that. They're not doing that at Mm. all. Um, And the highly, highly paid consultants are, but they're just basically (laughs) trying to jam their approach to your business because they've got a, a, you know, a playbook. And, Mm. um, but I think there's a lot that, a lot that we can do to mm. to get started.
0: That's that's really really good advice, and I think that um, like <clears throat> you know in in our travels we hear uh, safety professionals being frustrated that they they kind of get shut down before the conversation gets going about um, uh, exploring or implementing new technology. But it's probably because they're jumping ahead to the to the buy decision <clears throat> without without doing that fundamental groundwork in order to kind of articulate the the message and the value that they they probably intuitively see you know in in their in their heads but have difficulty uh describing or convincing the rest of the organization that it's the the right thing to do at that Mm. at that time so
1: well that was one of the reasons why even uh, scott like we we went and started safeonomics because there was this intersection that we saw between safety and and business and trying to see how do you bridge that gap and what is the role of the safety professional in that and really what it comes down to i think is that a safety professional is in a great position to be a translator for multiple areas of business from the c-suite to the line worker to regulatory bodies they're They're in a, a great spot that you can jump to to any of those and learn to to really understand how the business works because you have access to so many different areas of the company. Um, mm-hmm. and then you can build trust in all those different ways. So then when someone comes in and says, "We're going to deploy AI in this company, it's the safety professional can step back and say, "Wait a second, i I understand the the problems that are going on right now. Maybe this isn't the right tool to deploy." But let's look at how people are actually working and then start to break be that voice of reality, in a sense, between all the different functional areas in the in the organization. So uh, I, I love that we started the conversation talking about even curiosity. And I think that that's a huge superpower for a lot of safety professionals to be able to be curious about how management runs things. How does a how does a welder, do their job. And, and can you communicate that between those two very opposite ends of the spectrum within your organization? I think that's really where you start to be able to pool those bits of information and come up with that answer or come up with that definition of what is the problem we are actually trying to solve. And then if the safety professional is bringing that up, they are in a much better position to actually implement those, uh, the correct tool and actually get some real world results by implementing those.
2: Yeah, and if you if you go to the the concept of safe safe-onom, safe is that it? Yes. Um <laughs> and you're wanting to which is in my mind it's about how do you demonstrate the value? Um right. the, the value proposition is how well you can architect a solution to solve a problem. Now, a lot of the time that you're trying to demonstrate return on investment for safety technologies is dollar return on investment. So, how much money, how much time, you know, how, how much can I save, to, or how much is that dollar return on investment going to be? But if the um, if the problem is um, how do I validate the quality of a weld? Um, which is going to improve the psychological safety of that, this psych health and safety of that welder, because they now know that there's a technology solution that's validating the quality of their weld, so that in the future they're not going to be the ones that are held culpable for the issue, because they're getting real time contextual information, so that weld quality is done, sealed, and delivered before they leave, um, so that they can fix something in situ if needed. Something like weld quality. Something like um, if I go and implement a million dollar software solution, the metrics might be, well, how often is it used? Right. You know, the return on investment will be well, an, an engagement metric. Like, how often is that, is that technolo- technology actually used? Um, It might be, how much of a percentage of my risk information is real time? Hmm. It might be, how often does a How often or in what format or in what context can a supervisor have a safety interaction in real time because they've been facilitated with a platform to do that? Those types of um, trade-offs, or they might not actually be specifically linked to a dollar return, will be a value return for the business. So I believe that technology has the ability for us to scale our impact and scale our value proposition. But we have to be solving a clear problem. So if we can articulate the problem, and we can demonstrate how we're we're making sense and solving that problem in a more meaningful way for a business, then we can basically look at that economic value proposition and say back, you know, we actually, you know, we're we're providing value to the business.
0: So, so hopefully, everybody listening is listening with curiosity and uh, (laughs) you know, taking a few a few. uh, key key points away um, i i don't think you know an, an hour with with cam is a, is enough time to to really dig into everything that that uh, we'd like to and i'm sure listeners would like to dig into so cam you maybe we can um wrap things up by you sharing a little bit about the uh safety innovation academy that uh, that you mentioned early on and uh what you know how, how to people connect with you and 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 uh, and learn more from uh from your lessons.
2: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, look, so I'm full time in this space. It's all I do. I love it. And I like helping organizations succeed in this space. Um it's effectively two ways or a few ways that you can connect with me. One obviously is on LinkedIn. The second is um camstevens.au which is my independent voice uh of Being that trusted voice in safety tech, Uh, keynote presentations, helping organisations with that thought leadership to to get started and move forward. Uh, And then the Safety Innovation Academy is effectively um, starting to grow. Uh, We we offer courses to support organisations to improve their digital literacy. We have a six-part digital safety transformation series for large organisations, and we have a series of courses that we're um, Soon to be released, I'm hoping that over 24, we have a a really decent roadmap of, of um, courses and educational content, foundations of artificial intelligence for health and safety, for example, how to be operationally curious, how to design service blueprints, how to develop persona maps, all of these how to get started things. Um, so, yeah, I work globally with organizations through the Innovation Academy and through my consulting practice, pocket knife Group. Happy to have a chat and um, so connect with me on linkedin and hopefully we can do some work together
0: awesome yeah that's it's great i really appreciate your time and <clears throat> i know we had some some struggles lining up a time that worked uh, worked for everybody so i'm glad we could finally get this in the in the calendar and uh, yeah really have enjoyed watching your journey and uh and again really appreciate you taking the time to uh to speak with gabe and i today
2: thanks for the opportunity gents Take care. Have a good evening. And I will go and have a coffee because it's morning here. <laughs> Sounds right. good. Thanks, yeah. Dan. Catch you. Bye now. Ya.
0: Hey, thank you for listening to today's podcast. Really appreciate your uh, time and attention. And just want to give a special shout out to Isometrics, our sponsor of today's podcast. If you're looking for ESG software or EHS software, please visit isometrics.com. Thank you.